This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, You are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and World Radio program that helps Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. Hello, everyone, and happy Memorial Day. I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And I would like to uh, thank all of the veterans that have served this country and protected our families and our values and our Christian, our Christian way of life through the years. I know that my father served in the military during World War II. Uh, was a career military man for 32 years. My wife's father uh, as well. He was on Normandy and got two medals uh, for valor and being wounded. Uh, so uh, right. my, my hat's off to him. And my dad did 20 years in the Air Force. Served in Korea, Distinguished Flying Cross. And I have a nephew uh, in Afghanistan now. And I have a son who is going into the Army, career Army. So uh, we hope that uh, those guys will stay safe. But it looks like it's going to be a great Memorial Day tomorrow. The weather is supposed to be beautiful here in Ocean City, New Jersey, and all of South Jersey. So uh, I hope that people will get out there and show some support and go to a parade or take your children to a parade. Because it's really important that we teach our children to love the country. You know, that is, uh, yeah, I've been reading um, some of Montesquieu. And Montesquieu, if anybody knows who he is, Montesquieu was like the teacher of the Founding Fathers. He is the most, when the Founding Fathers quoted for what they were basing everything that they wrote about what kind of government we should have, the number one quotations were from the Bible. But the second most quoted uh, book was from Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws. And one of the things he teaches, he was... Uh, knowledgeable about all forms of government all around the world and all periods of time. And so in the spirit of laws, he describes all these governmental systems and what makes them survive, what keeps them going, and what gives the most liberty to people. And in a democratic society, the biggest, most important virtue that people needed to keep up before and to help prevent their society from collapsing caused by corruption was the virtue of love of country. If they maintained love of country, that would keep their their country surviving. And what do we find today in the political realm? We find people uh, really um, discrediting patriotism, mm. right? If you're a patriot, you're somehow, somehow you're kind of a, a nationalist, right? And nationalism got really a bad light shined on it from World War II because of the Nazis, Mm -hmm. right? So the lesson to be learned is not that nationalism is bad, not patriotism. Just like um, one of the lessons that people learned from World War II was uh, instead of that we ought to fight evil, what what lesson did they learn? They learned not to fight. And that's the wrong lesson that you learned from World War II. Mm. If you... Don't fight. You're going to have to wind up fighting harder later. Mm-hmm. That's the lesson. So another lesson that we need to take to heart is love of 
country is very important to maintain liberty. So, so get out there and enjoy Memorial Day. Take your kids and teach them to love the country. You know, Keith, when I when I look at this country and the direction that it's heading, my main concern is that we're one generation away from defending our core beliefs, not only as Christians, but people who love God, country, and family. Absolutely. And uh, my hat's off to your, your family who's uh, getting ready to serve, and, and I have a young man in my own practice whose mother works uh, as a nurse for me who's in Afghanistan right now as we speak as a Marine. And uh, he wanted, in the worst way, to join the Marines when he was in high school, a senior in high school. And his parents were torn, but finally mm-hmm. they consented, and uh, he went off to boot camp right after he graduated from high school. So my hat's off to Ryan Lossie, who's serving right now for us in Afghanistan. Yeah, we have lots of, lots of brave men and women serving for us. Well, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. Check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's the number four, Evidence for Faith, if you'd like to call in today. Mike, what are we talking about today? We've got a great show today, Keith. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about the historical Jesus. Um, cool. And you know what? We're going to do something very interesting. Um, in an attempt to appeal to the skeptics, because we don't have to appeal to somebody who's already a believer and who believes that the Bible is trust- trustworthy and true, All right. we're going to use sources outside of the Bible to appeal to those who might say, well, uh, you know, the Bible's a good source and it's all well and good, but you know what? I don't believe your Bible. Right. And therefore, I don't believe in the, the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. Right. Uh, so if you want to give me proof that Jesus actually existed, give me something outside of the Bible. Give, you know, why is it the only thing that's written about Jesus is only in the Bible? You know, I so, heard that not not that long ago. Somebody came up to me after a talk and said, well, my husband's not here. He doesn't really believe. And his main thing is that there's no history book. There's Why didn't any historians write about Jesus, if that's true? And we're going to tell you yes. right now that there are that many, many, many sources that, you can u- that are outside of the Bible that can be utilized. But we're also going to give you the reasons as to why the Bible, historically as an ancient text, is an outstanding source because it stands the test of time and the, the proximity, proximity of the written word in the Bible relative to the historical events that it describes. Absolutely. And there's no other ancient document that puts the proximal writing to the date of that historical figure that we call Jesus. And and it really substantiates what's written in the Bible as really factual and true. So if you'd like to call in, you can call us at 609-398-1020. And uh, don't call on Mike's cell phone. That's the wrong number to call. you got to... You gotta call the call in line. Our engineer Tom Feliciano is gonna pick up calls for us um, as we go along. But so let's say you've got lots of ways to check us out. Evidenceforfaith.com. We're available on iTunes now. Evidence for Faith. Just podcast. Go to the iTunes store. Check out the podcast uh, portion and put in Evidence for Faith, and you'll see our podcast there. We are also on Facebook. So you can connect with us there on Facebook under Evidence for Faith as a group. Question, Keith. Sure. If they if somebody goes to our website, which is evidence the number four faith dot com, right? Uh, tell me what is the most uh, frequently referenced um, 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 recording? Show? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, we've got a podcast page that shows all of our radio shows going back to the beginning, and I just was looking up the stats earlier. And the number one show right now is Where Did the Bible Come From? That was a great show. I like that show. So so that one has jumped up. It's become very popular. It's got 
twice as many, more than twice as many hits as any of the other shows. And the last time, last month, when we were doing the stats on this, the most popular show was the Prophecy, the Fulfilled Prophecy, and that's dropped way down now. So uh, the number two show is um, Principles That Make Nations Wealthy. Remember that? Mm-hmm. We did that show. That was that was a good show. Then third is the show on Miracles. And then fourth is the Is the Bible Reliable? So those are the most popular shows right now. So if you didn't hear any of those, you can check them out on either iTunes or directly at the website. Well, let's see. I brought a news item in that I thought was very interesting because all the time we hear the left is really big on that poverty causes crime. And so if you want to reduce the crime rates, just uh, start doing more welfare. Let the government start pumping out more cash and it will it will uh, lower the crime rates. And in good times, crime is supposed to go down when people have more money. And in hard times, crime is supposed to increase. That's their theory. Poverty and social institutions cause crime. They cause people to be bad. Other people are naturally good, right? They're naturally... Um, they're naturally good. That's the view of the left. Well, some statistics that come from uh, breakpoint.org that they picked up from the FBI. Across the United States, crime rates are dropping for the third year in a row, kind of uh, just beginning right before the financial crash. So according to the FBI, violent crimes like murder and rape are down more than 5% in 2009, and property crimes down about 5%. So crime rates dropping more in big cities than in smaller cities, too. Why so, is that, Keith? What do you think? Did they give you a, uh, a reason for that? No, those are, those are just the raw data. The crime rates are going down, even though the economy is getting worse. So it goes against what the left claims is the cause for crime. So um, that's their view. Poverty ca- causes crime. And that was a view that started around the 1930s from some teaching from some um, major um, professors uh, teaching that, uh, you know, that, that uh, sociological factors uh, caused crime. So they thought that all the evils in society are caused by poverty, unemployment, racism, and if those things were overcome, you get rid of crime. So, but uh, not true. And one of the things that uh, Colson, who does the Breakpoint News, Chuck Colson from Watergate fame, uh, he points out a study that he talks about a lot. It's by psychiatrist Stanton Samenow and sociologist Samuel Yokelson, both professors from Harvard, did a major, major study, 17 years studying prisoners. Um, this was published in the 70s that found that habitual criminals, um, what they had in common wasn't their economic background, and it wasn't any history of abuse either. That's another thing that we think uh, causes crime. It was actually the fact that they chose to break the law. It was the moral choices that they made, and also they showed that they were affected by uh, what they were taught as children. So they have moral. We have moral uh, formative years that we go through, and if you're not taught right and wrong as a small child. You have trouble, and you simply won't choose to do the right when you get older. So very interesting news item, and 
just shows that the Christian worldview, the worldview that we talk about on this program, really is true, really affects reality and matters. So we've got we've to pay attention. We have to know why the Christian worldview is true. So we're, gonna, we're going to dig into the truth of the historical Jesus. Who's the real Jesus? I get this question a lot. I have friends who ask me, you know, if we only knew what the real Jesus was like, not the one who did miracles, not the spiritual, you know, rose from the dead kind of guy, but the real Jesus, the, the guy who was maybe an itinerant Jewish teacher wandering around. If we could just get back to his teaching, that'd be great. Yeah, one of, one of the confusing parts of this whole uh, discussion, Keith, is some of the Hollywood-type uh, genre films that have been problematic in, in formulating people's opinion as to who this, this Jesus was. Um, you know, the Jesus that, that married Mary or had an affair with Mary and all the other uh, nonsense that, that Hollywood has come up with. Right. Yeah, there's, there's been this search for the historical Jesus. How do we find, you know, let's not listen to Christianity. Let's not listen to the four Gospels. Let's try to figure out who the real Jesus is. And this has been something that's gone on historically. Now, the first one really was in, began in 1799 with a book by a man by the name of Schleiermacher called On Religion. And this is where you get the classical liberalism, the classical view that, um, you know, Jesus was not a miracle worker. would kind of strip away all of that magic stuff, all of the miracles and all the religious stuff, and strip away, and let's see if we can't figure out who the real Jesus is. Yeah, this, this was a, a liberalism that's unlike today's liberalism. I want right. to make that point. Because this goes back a, a couple of hundred years ago, whereas the liberal left is completely different than what Schleiermacher was talking about in uh, 1799, his treatise. Uh, it basically taught that people were getting better and better in in so much as a, an evolutionary model would teach. Right. You know, that we're all getting better and better, and society is evolving into a better place. It was part of modernism. Everything's yeah. getting better. Yeah, people are getting better. People are evolving. Uh, came out of the the uh, rationalism of the of the uh, 1700s. And and they also tried to strip away sin out of the biblical model of, yeah. of the good and evil. That's There's right. Re- man is not really sinful. They were, they were downplaying the sin part of it. Right. And by downplaying the sin part of it, you really didn't need a, a savior. So what happened then? How, how come that thought isn't dominant these days? Well, it, it actually fizzled out around World War I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, th- things were not getting better. No, things were not getting better. In fact, the world was plunged into this complete world war. Uh, in fact, uh, terrible things occurred during that world war. Uh, one thing, uh, including mustard gas and, and all the, the, the lung problems and the death and the destruction and, and so forth. And, and never before had the world seen this play out on a stage so large. So it showed that man was evil. There right. was an evil intent behind man and uh, what he stood for and what his ultimate goals were for. Right. You know, money and power and so forth. But the view of the Bible didn't really change, though, after that. Uh, You know, still they believed that the book was not inspired. Um, You know, okay, it's a good text. It's got a lot of um, religious truth in it, but there's nothing. It's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't penned by God. Mm. 
So, um, you know, they, they still maintain that there were no supernatural events. So you've got to kind of strip that away. But they also wanted to strip away any dogmatism, right? And you still hear that today from atheists. You'll hear, you know, let's not be dogmatic about, uh, you know, beliefs. So, um, so, you know, that's still a big part of liberalism, getting rid of, get, getting rid of dogmatism. Well, along came Barth, and he wrote a little rebuttal uh, to this liberal slant, didn't he? Yes. He wrote a, yeah. uh, an epistle to the Romans and uh, uh, basically launched the neo-orthodoxy movement. Right. And right. That, that was uh, 1918. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was right about at the end of World War One. So he was saying that we ought to, we ought not to seek out the historical Jesus, right? So. Because history, he thought, was not important for faith. So this was a big turning point. You know, the, this, um, he and, and a, a guy by the name of Boltman mm. had this view. So essentially what was happening was that, now, now remember that Karl Barth was a believer. You know, he was, he was a believer. Um, but he thought that Christianity was losing the battle. He saw all the work by Schlermacher and others that were... Uh, you know, looked like they were proving that the Bible wasn't written, that, you know, none of the prophecies had been taken place or that the, that the books had been written after the prophecies, things like that. All this um, uh, doctrinal uh, theory about who wrote the Old Testament, that was when all that was being developed. And then you had Darwin. Um, so you had lots of things going on, and they really thought that Christianity was losing the battle. So if you think that that you're losing the battle of facts and ideas, what do you do? You abandon the facts and ideas. So he thought that history was not important, that we could still have faith. And you know, there are a lot of people that are still stuck in that today. They still think that we're losing the battle of ideas, but I can have faith anyway. I remember being at a conference not long ago, and uh, a fellow got up to do a short speech, and he talked about the fact that he was an atheist in this short speech. And when he got done, and the, um, the meeting was over, people were in a break, and I noticed these uh, bunch of uh, ladies got up and went over to him and said, well, you know, you can still be spiritual, you know, as if you can still have faith even though you're an atheist. You know, and, and in a sense, a lot of people who claim to be Christians, and I know because I was one of them, thought that you could still be spiritual even though you think it's not true. And you call yourself a Christian, you go to church, and you've got faith. But it's not faith in anything true. It's just the empty faith by itself, which leads nowhere. Correct. And to have a a true faith, obviously you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and obviously having that faith and the inspiration that's afforded by the Holy Spirit is what we're all about. We know, Keith and I know that this show is not enough to convert somebody. The Holy Spirit has to be on, on board. Absolutely. And, um, uh, but it helps to have some historical facts uh, that, that we can help people right along, at least plant some seeds. And that's really what this, this uh, movement is for apologetics, so that people can understand um, really more about the Bible, who this historical figure that we call Jesus is, and why he was real, and why he can make a huge difference, not only in this life, but also in your uh, eternity. 
and not only are we not losing the battle of facts and ideas, the battle for the Bible, but we're actually winning it. The more and more that is discovered, the more it supports Christianity, both for the truth of the Bible, but also for the existence of God, the uh, creation of life by an intelligent designer, and on and on and on it goes. All right, so we talked about these, um, this first quest for this historical Jesus, but there was a second quest that came along in the 50s and 60s, and they rejected uh, Bart's idea that you didn't need to find any historical Jesus. So they believed that you did need history to believe, that you couldn't just believe in a vacuum and kind of with nothing, because if you had faith and then not even any history, what are you really having in faith in at all? Nothing. So uh, some of Boltman's students, in particular a guy named James Robinson, um, led this second quest for the historical uh, Jesus. And uh, even so, you know, even though they were looking for this real Jesus, they didn't think that faith ought to be based on history. That faith ought to be that faith should be based on the the facts of of Jesus, not at all. You've got to have faith in addition to no matter what what the the um, the real Jesus was like. And and please understand, everybody, faith is a gift uh, that God freely gives you. It's a function of you accepting that gift, and um, uh, you know, having read the Bible and having understood. Uh, what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, it becomes a whole lot easier. And uh, we also know that some of you people may not have that gift yet, but our show is all about finding that gift, unwrapping that gift, receiving that gift, and coming to a saving faith. Absolutely. So the uh, so that was the second quest, the 50s and 60s, but then, you know, it came popular again, and many people probably uh, remember this in the 70s and 80s. It was the third uh, wave of this popularity to find the historical Jesus. And now we're talking about the famous Jesus Seminar. Remember that? These are the guys who voted with marbles, right? And they would vote with different colored tokens to see whether Jesus actually said the things that were claimed in the Gospels. That's right. If, and if, they were very, very skeptical. Yeah. If, if they threw a red bead in the hat, there was consensus that Jesus probably said that. If it was a pink bead, well, maybe he said it, and, and so forth. And there were different colored beads, and, and uh, basically uh, uh, they scrutinized the Bible and basically, I think, disemboweled the Bible. Yeah, they didn't believe that much of it was, was actually spoken by Jesus. So, so uh, they were very skeptical, but they were actually um, – more moderate than the previous two. I mean, the previous two basically wanted to wipe out the entire Bible. So, but they, you know, they did incorporate some views that we still tend to see as true today. For one thing, that Jesus was an actual person who fit into the first century Palestine, the into that milieu, that that kind of Jewish background, that he was a Jewish scholar and he did believe all the things that uh, the. Uh, is talked about in the Jewish Old Testament and historically that Jews of that time believed in. So in that sense, it was not, um, it was a little less extreme than the previous. So in, in fact, some of some of those people were even evangelicals who who tried hard to find out, you know, almost like um, 
what was Jesus thinking at the time? You know, what kind of ideas influenced him? One is a, uh, a famous New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, who really demonstrates that Jesus really did have that first century view of things when he was talking about his own resurrection and things like that. He didn't have Greek ideas. He didn't have some of the ideas that we have maybe today, but he actually had the, those Old Testament uh, Jewish beliefs of the first century about uh, life and death and, and resurrection and things. Sure. Well, he came onto his own, and he had to have their mindset uh, in order to uh, win them over as, um, as their Messiah. And, uh, of course, many didn't receive him. But, Keith, let's go ahead. Well, I was just going to remind everybody that if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And you can call us and join in the discussion at 609-398-1020. So I, I wanted to bring up, Keith, the, the next um, uh, topic, and that was what exactly do we know about Jesus outside of New Testament writings? And why is that important to us? Why is it important for a skeptic to understand that there are plenty of sources and plenty of material outside of the New Testament that tells us about this this individual that we know in history as Jesus? Yeah, that's that's right. There are a lot of Christians have this mistaken notion that there just isn't anything written about Jesus outside of the Bible, that there's no history about him. And you hear, maybe you might have heard some writings of some atheist who claims that Jesus never even existed. I mean, I remember hearing that when I was growing up, that people, that there were some people who thought that Jesus never existed. Well, these are fringe people. I mean, you know, there are extremists, um, you know, on all sides, and these are the extreme on the left. They, um, you know, there's really uh, no evidence you have to give up all the evidence that there is to believe that Jesus never existed. That's that's really fringe. You're, even your Jesus seminar people don't believe that. So, so if you know there are lots of non-Christian biblical scholars who laugh at these people, the ones who say that that Jesus never existed. So, so if you've heard that kind of thing, then of course you may think when somebody says, "Well, there's nothing historical. There's no." There's no historical writings from the times about Jesus that you might think that that's true, but it's not. It's simply not true. You know, you know what I was astounded by, Keith, when I was looking at the uh, the source material for this uh, conversation that we're having today, mm-hmm. that there were seven, at least that we know of right now as we speak, there's at least 17 early non-Christian sources that are within 100 to 150 years of Jesus's life. So we have 17 sources, writers, early, non-Christian, early, that are outside of the New Testament, that are historical writings that reference Jesus, and half of them refer to him as deity. Right. So, and, and four of them are major, major sources. Mm. So so you've got these mentionings of them. Uh, two of them are actually emperors of Rome. Mm. Both uh, Trajan and Hadrian both mention Jesus in their writings. Now, Trajan, interestingly, wrote that... Um, he had a problem in Turkey, right? Mm-hmm. With yeah, the Christians was... who were worshiping this God. They would come together early in the morning and start singing praises unto to Jesus as if he was a God, and they did not and would not believe in the Roman gods, and that he wanted to persecute them to death, put them out. So he wrote back to Rome and said, hey, would I do the right thing if I exterminated these people? Right. And it was Trajan who, Trajan who wrote back and said, no, don't exterminate them. Right. 
yeah, don't, you know, leave them alone. Don't don't bother them too much. Right. One of the other uh, persons who's written about Jesus is Lucian, who was a satirist, a, a satirist, uh, not a satirist. I don't know what a yeah. satirist is. Satirist. Satirist is yeah. the right pronunciation. Yeah. I got to talk to my. Group, yeah, his genre is satire. My... So he would make fun of these people. Yeah, exactly. And what did he write, Keith? Do you remember what, what we read? Did well, he... he wrote about he wrote about how they helped people, and so what you ought to do is take advantage of them and move yeah. from house to house and get free food and lodging. Yeah. Just pretend you're a Christian, they'll take you in, and then maybe after three days when they found out that you were lazy and you didn't want to work and that you were a freeloader, they would kick you out because they had this crazy notion that you should work. If you don't work, you don't eat. Right, right. And that's uh, obviously a reference to uh, what Paul wrote, uh, if a man doesn't uh, work, he shouldn't uh, eat. Uh, so <laughs> that, yep. that was his comedy routine. So he also mentions about how the true believers would, if they were persecuted, would not uh, give up the truth of Christianity, even if it meant their life, and uh, that they would they would rather die. And uh, of course, that that did happen hmm. a lot. Yeah. So um, so let's do some comparisons, though. Let's compare. If all right, if we've got all these non-Christian sources, how does that compare to other? Sources. All right. Well, we many people are familiar with Livy's history of Rome. Okay. Now, Livy is a major historian. What he writes about Rome is considered the gospel. Right. It's considered true. Yet the truth is that he wrote many times, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years after the fact, he's writing the history. Compare that to with what we have about Jesus. We're talking about non-Christian sources uh, within 100 to 150 years. So, so this is a much closer to the truth. Also, let's compare Jesus to another historical figure. Okay, let's compare him to Tiberius Caesar. All right now, Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar when Jesus was crucified. Right, and Pontius Pilate was responsible to Tiberius. That's right. Now, right. what do you think we will have? Better historical information about Tiberius or better historical information about Jesus? Uh, there was very little referenced to Tiberius yes, during that, that time frame. that's right. That's right. In fact, there were only, uh, again, four major sources written about Tiberius, one who was contemporary with Tiberius who says virtually nothing about him just mentions him. Very little information do we get about Tiberius. So we don't find out until much later from historians such as Tacitus, Suetonius, who wrote almost a hundred years later about Tiberius. And then the fourth major source is uh, Theocassius, who wrote in the early third century. Right. So when so, you compare those references right. to the emperor sitting on the, th uh, the throne, if you will, while Jesus was walking the earth, to the New Testament writers and even Paul, mm -hmm. then we have documents that are dated within really 15 to, to really 60 years, if you go all the way out to John. If uh, you include the biblical. Yes. Then, then you know, these fabulous. sources these sources are right. tremendously strong. So, so, uh, so let's go over that again. Then the numbers are, there was 17 non-Christian sources within... Uh, maximum 150 years of Jesus' life. Twelve of them talk about his death by crucifixion. Half of those call him 
deity or mentioned that his believers believed that he was God. So um, uh, then now you've got, now let's talk about the Christian sources. Of course, you've got the four Gospels, which we've talked about in past shows and how early they are to the life of Jesus. But you've also got sources such as Ignatius, Polycarp, uh, Clement, who were writing in the times between, say, 95 to 110 A.D. People who knew eyewitnesses and could write about the life of Jesus. Um, and these are people that all the critics agree on the dating methods, uh, you know, on the dates of those when they wrote. So right. This is all very close to the life of Jesus. So if these people were writing about Christ 45 to 110 A.D., mm-hmm. and we're looking at maybe 70 years, 80 years at the most, after Christ died, then when you look at the dating methods, these are actually closer than the um, um, other uh references, and they're very, very strong. Right. Very strong references. So if you're going to throw out the the other uh, standards, then you you have to throw everything out, but you can't. Right. No, because otherwise you're left with no history at all. Right. You've got no history of Rome, you've got no history of Tiberius, etc., etc., etc. So we know from outside sources at least 60 facts about the life of Jesus. Okay, this includes his birth, his death, that he was reported to be resurrected, about his disciples, about that he claimed to be deity, etc. So that's just the outside New Testament sources, 60 different facts about the life of Jesus. Then if you throw in the, um, about what the, what Ignatius Polycarp and others wrote, we've got 130 elements of Jesus's life that here again this is outside we're not talking about what's in the bible Th- these are what early church fathers and disciples of the disciples wrote about Jesus's life outside of the bible about 130 different elements of Jesus's life that we that we know about that's a a, a strong number absolutely and this is outside of the uh the um uh, the new testament itself yep you are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And feel free to call us at 398-1020 if you have any questions or concerns, if you have any uh, disagreement with what we have to say, or if you want to uh, plug something in that we may have um, not mentioned that you know of, please share it with us, and you can call 398-1020. All right. So, so that's, you know, that's this gets past, gets us past this idea of, is the historical Jesus something different than what we have in the New Testament? And really, it's not. And right now, I think what we're going to do is focus in on one of those areas. The question is, you know, what the people want to do is one of the one of the things critics want to do is claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, right? That he never claimed to have uh, to be deity. So. Um, so actually, what we're going to do is uh, try and answer those critics mm. and use only those texts from the New Testament that are well accepted by the critics, that are agreed upon. These are reliable texts, you know, because they do distinguish. Some of the, the heavy critics will say, well, you know, John, for instance, the book of John comes too late. Um, so we can't, any verses from John, they're just going to ignore 
one of the things they do like is they like Mark. So we're going to look at some verses on on uh, Jesus' deity from Mark and from uh, Matthew. Uh, early; th- These are the two earliest Gospels. So we'll take a look at that. Okay, let's, let's take a look at uh, um, Matthew 11.27, mm-hmm. where uh, Jesus claims to have unique knowledge of God as his son. Right. And, and so, so this is clearly a claim uh, of deity, that, that he and the Father are one. He has knowledge uh, that only he has because of his relationship with God. So, and this is from an early text, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Uh, another one, Mark two one through twelve, and Mark thirteen thirty two. No one knows the timing of his coming, his second coming, but only the Father, and He is the Son of the Father. Okay, claiming a special relationship with God, that He is deity. It's interesting, and then we have uh, Mark uh, fourteen. 61, where right. he will come uh, as the judge. Yes. He's going to come and judge the nations. He's going to come and judge uh, the unrepentant. So setting himself up as God, you know, he is going to be your judge at the end of your life. So um, uh, now, how do critics respond then? Well, one of the problems that they have is that uh, they need to know why, or the, he needs to have a cause for his death. Oh, yeah, so, right. If if um, they're going to put him to death, what'd they put him to death for? Well, he had to claim somehow that he was God or equivalent to God or right. had divine knowledge or something. Right. And in the Talmud, it says that he was crucified for sorcery. Now, you know, Keith, I found that very, very interesting. I mean, sorcery in those days was considered of a false teaching, and under New Testament law, punishable by death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find the, the charge in the Talmud very interesting because they wanted to distance themselves and divorce themselves from the fact that he was, it, by inference, anything referable to the Messiah, you know, the anointed yes. one. Yes, So they had to come up with something, a false teacher, interesting, you know, as if he worked on the devil's side mm-hmm. and that he was not on God's side. But it worked perfectly well with the the Jewish hierarchy and the standard because they don't want to make any mention of the fact that he might even be Messiah or divine. Right. Interesting. And what did the high priest ask him, right? What did he ask him when Jesus stood before him? He asked them if he was the Messiah. Yes. If he was the uh, Son of Man, if he was deity. See, uh, one of the things that people fail to understand is that this Son of Man reference, they, they kind of think that, well, uh, Son of Man is when Jesus was talking about his human nature, and when he would say Son of God, he was talking about his deity. But actually, both of them refer to Jesus' deity. And this is from uh, a, a verse in Daniel 7, where it talks about the Son of Man uh, coming on the clouds. And this is a reference to God that and the Son of Man will be worshipped. So, so this is a clearly what the high priest knew was that Son of Man represented deity. And when Jesus said, "I am the Son of Man," the chief priest ripped his his cloth, his his, right. his robe, because yep. he was so upset with the fact that Jesus, in fact, was affirming the fact that he was deity, and therefore blasphemous, and therefore 
to be crucified. Right. Or stoned, actually. The the initial uh, reports were that he was to be stoned, but he was, in fact, hung, hung on a cross. Right. So now, how? so, okay, then um, an objection then at this point might be that, well, how do we know that Jesus really said these things? Because maybe the church came along later and wrote in to the Gospels and put these words, essentially, into Jesus' mouth. How do we know that Jesus actually said these things? Well, um, there, there are actually a couple of reasons, Keith. Um, if the church sort of Monday morning quarterbacked these things into um, the New Testament, right. we should see these things not only in the epistles, but also in the, in the Gospels as well. Okay. But we don't. In the epistles, they'd make no reference to Jesus uh, referring to himself as the Son of Man. Right. Okay? Right. Now, if, if the church was going to do that, in other words, rewrite the New Testament or put words into Jesus' mouth, it would have been sort of a uniform thing. Mm-hmm. But the Gospels only reference the life and times of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, of course, attributed to Luke, Volume 2, if you will. Right. But none of the epistles from any of the uh, apostles, if you will, make reference to the fact that he was the Son of God. Son of Man. So, Son of God, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so they're not going to put Son of Man into the Gospels because they weren't using that term. Okay, so that's one thing. The other thing is that um, if they did this, why didn't they clean up some of the difficult verses? Right? If they're, if they're rewriting the history, how come we've got this difficult uh, verse that says that Jesus didn't know something? Oh, right? right. That Jesus didn't know about his second coming. Right, Mark well, 13, 32. That's right. Yeah. So if he is God, then how come he doesn't know? So, and if the, and if the a critic's going to say, well, they, were, they put that in about, about Jesus uh, being son of God, son of man, why didn't they clean it up then? Well, the truth is because they didn't write it in. If and, they if they had been writing it in, they would have they would have cleaned up some of these difficult things. And you know what, Keith? If, if you look at the text and the way Jesus answered, you know, only my Father knows the day and the hour. Jesus, it, it basically was confidential information. Jesus was not going to divulge that to the disciples, nor to anybody else, either in written word form. Mm-hmm. because it's not for us to know the day or the hour. It's only for us to know that it's going to happen and that we have time to get ready. And it was almost a a cautionary thing. Just know that I'm coming back and be ready. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so, um, so this son of man phrase, let's go into that a little further. Um, this was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, mm-hmm. right? Like we said, the New Testament epistles don't use that title. Um, so why then, supposedly, would they have put it in? Um, and, but there are lots of other things that the Gospels don't put, or, or rather the uh, New Testament church doesn't put into the Gospels, right? They had lots of other issues going on. If they had been writing the Gospels to meet their needs, they would have th- put in things like about a teaching about circumcision, you know, or what about the role of women in the church? Things like that. All of these kinds of um, issues would have been written in if they were, in fact, writing in stuff into the church. Well, Acts, Acts does contain that title, uh, the Son of Man. But again, mm-hmm. this was in the gospel genre and uh, attributed to Luke, obviously, as, as uh, part two of his gospel. 
uh, and his overall account. But that is the only writing in the New Testament outside of the Gospel accounts that refers to uh, Jesus as the Son of Man. But none of the epistles do, and that's that's a key and critical uh, factor to the New Testament writings. Right, and it, and it was used by all those Gospels that the critics like, you know, that the, the verses that the critics... Um, uh, think are early enough. Those the Son of Man stuff is is all in there. So um, so we've got to now. Let's look. Let's try and use uh, the Jesus Seminar standard then. Right. Their standard was that if something was in two different sources, then it was probably authentic. Okay. Now, if you look though at what they say about Jesus saying the Son of Man, did he say that or not? They say no, he didn't say that. But that violates their own criteria, because Son of Man is in all four sources. All four gospel accounts. Yep. So, so Son of Man is there, it's authentic, and Jesus really did say it. And the Jesus Seminar votes no, it wasn't, even though it, that violates their own standards, their own criteria for whether Jesus uh, said things or not. And, and you know what's interesting, Keith, is that it's Old Testament terminology that's the only terminology Jesus knew. Mm-hmm. New Testament had not been written yet. Right, right. He was the basis and the embodiment of the New Testament, and things that he was saying were going to become ultimately the written word. But his reference point was all Old Testament material, and that's where it came from. Absolutely. You know, so none of the uh, writers of the epistles would have used that because they were focused on New Testament material, writing down letters uh, and not referencing Old right. Testament materials. Right, what was happening 20 years after Right. After Jesus had uh, died and rose again. Right. So, so what do we find when we look at the historical record? What do we find? Uh, did Jesus claim to be God? In fact, he did. He claimed to be deity. Now, the interesting thing is, then, if you have someone who's teaching that they're God, they get killed for blasphemy, what does it mean if if God raises them from the dead? Uh, it means something very special. Yeah, it means this person... If, if, if God raised them from the dead, then what they were saying was probably true, Right. that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Uh, in fact, people heard that at the beginning of his public ministry, and they saw it happen basically at the end of his public ministry, mm-hmm. you know, with the 40 or so days that he walked on the earth after his uh, resurrection. So you've got God's stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. Jesus says he is the Son of God, and God puts his stamp of approval and says, yes, he is. Jesus is deity. And, of course, what had to happen after that? He had to ascend up into the clouds, and, and what's he going to do again? He's already told us that he will come again in the clouds. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And we have been talking about the quest for the historical Jesus, showing that, uh, yes, in fact, there are many, many references to Jesus outside the Bible. Many historians within 100 to 150 years talk about Jesus as a historical figure. And also the fact that Jesus did, in fact, the most reliable sources say that Jesus did claim to be God. So briefly, we've got about 10 more minutes. We'll get started on the resurrection. We'll probably finish this up again 
next week, but we'll talk a little bit about the resurrection. What what does the scripture say, and what do the reliable sources say about the resurrection? Well, Keith, be, before we get into the actual resurrection, let me play a skeptic. Uh, you were a skeptic at one time, and so was I. I had mm-hmm. a false religion of, of science and medicine, and then I realized that there had to be more to this stuff than what I was learning in school, uh, and my own quest led me to this historical figure that we call Jesus. But as a skeptic, um, and by the way, I, I used to refer to uh, Christians, as, or I should say religion in general, as organized schizophrenia. Okay, I had a diagnosis, and I also had medicine for... Oh, yeah, what was for, it? Well, antipsychotics. Oh, okay. <laughs> Quite honestly, I mean, you know, people hearing voices, we had medicine for that. You know? Gotcha. And, uh, you know, so... but You're um, a bad boy. Uh, well, it's okay. I've been saved by, by grace and uh, by faith, and it was something that was a, a long process. In fact, I was 42 years old before I uh, came to that knowledge and that truth. But let me play the skeptic. All right. And so you're telling me that there was a character by the name of Jesus who historically lived approximately 2,000 years ago. Right. And that... Uh, uh, he is described in the Bible, and that you want me to read this book. Yeah, I want you to believe and put your trust in him as uh, God, okay. and but that this, he rose from the this dead. This book was written by a bunch of kooks, okay, a bunch of schizophrenics, a bunch of wackos, okay, and you want me to believe this stuff? I have a hard time with that. So you're saying because you don't believe the book? Well, I think that the book was written by a bunch of kooks. So... Show me something that's going to allow me to transcend that problem that I have with your book and make me a believer. All right. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to use an approach that is used by one of my professors, Gary Habermas, who, when he writes about the resurrection. He uses an approach called the minimalist approach. So what he does is he takes bare facts, bare minimal facts about Jesus' life, okay, Facts that virtually all the critics agree on. And by that, we mean we're talking 95% plus. And, and I'm saying 95% of the critics, right, the ones who don't believe in, say, the resurrection or the deity of Christ, um, those critics still agree on certain facts about Jesus. So what you do is you find out what those minimal facts are, and then you um, combine them into one uh, argument. Okay, so let me get this straight. You're going to tell me about, about a guy who claimed to be God, who died, and who was raised again. I mean, listen, I'm a doctor. I know that when you're dead, you're dead. You don't, raise, you don't get raised again. Well, so, so prove it to me. How did this happen? Well, that's what, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the facts um, that argue um, that these particular things about Jesus are true, and you put them together. All you need is between what Habermas uses is uh, four to seven, and these are between four and seven of the best attested facts about Jesus' life that virtually no one uh, has any problem with. You're saying and you're that, talking even the extremists like Jesus seminar people. All right, so you're saying that people smarter than me believe these facts that you're going to give me. Exactly. People people in the know um, who 
still remain critics because they haven't put all these facts together into a cohesive argument. That's what we're going to do. We're going to put it in together into a cohesive argument. All right. Well, you got four minutes. Yeah, we're gonna not going to get very far today. So, but at least we know the the approach that we're taking, and we're going to look at some of the earliest writings. So we're talking even before the Gospels. Um, we're going to use Paul because with critics, Paul is in. And a lot of the Gospels, especially like the Gospel of John, is out. Why should I accept Paul's writings? Because of how early they are. Paul was the, the epistles by Paul are the earliest writings that we have. So, so um, you know, there's no chance for any embellishments to have dug, the, to have gotten in. We're talking about the earliest uh, ideas of early Christians. Yeah, but Paul was a follower of Christ, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. But or was he? Well, originally not, but was converted. And he talks about that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about what his early uh, beliefs were when he was first saved. And this goes back very, very early. So it's much earlier than the times of the Gospels, right? When the Gospels written maybe between uh, earliest, you're talking maybe um, 60 A.D., some some try to push it a little further forward, but but sixty. So so Paul was brainwashed. Um, well, that's what you might a skeptic might say that. Well, I'm skeptical. Okay, tell tell me how it is that Paul got converted. Uh, you mean the road to Damascus? Well, listen, Paul was a kook for Christ, as far as I'm concerned. Tell me why I should believe what Paul wrote. Well, that's I, what that's what we're getting into. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm ready. All right. So, so, uh, so he wrote things about uh, fifty-four, maybe to fifty-seven. So we're talking about twenty-seven years after the cruci- crucifixion. So very, very early, and certainly nothing that anybody is going to uh, have problems with. Um, for instance, if you've met anybody who's written, say, something about Vietnam, say, say you've got a friend who's writing about Vietnam, mm. are you going to say, "Oh, well, that's too long ago"? What do you know about it? You know what, I I have patients who are Vietnam vets and who have vividly recounted firefights Mm -hmm. and told me stories about how they were wounded or one of their best friends being shot in the chest and died in their arms. Um, And you didn't say, oh, I don't believe you. That was too long ago. A traumatic event like that uh, uh, sears a, a burning memory in your brain, and you can recount the smells the times, uh, the tunes, everything about that time of your life is crystallized as a momentous um, memory. Yep. So we're going to get more into that. Next week, we'll dig into the evidences, the minimal facts argument for the resurrection. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm skeptic Dr. Mike Larrakis. Well, former skeptic. (laughs) (laughs) But keeping a skeptical mind, that's good. All Christians ought to have a skeptical mind. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. And remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.